Well, let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you that we can gather here today in the company of the saints and hear your word. And Father, as we talk about the joy of Jesus, I pray that you will help sharpen us, help us to know how to have the joy that he has and the joy that he offers. I pray for clarity. I pray that you will just help us to identify those obstacles to joy in our lives and that we will just anticipate the great uh, joyful time together that we will spend with Jesus for all eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to introduce you to a new word, cherophobia, cherophobia, okay? A cherophobic has an irrational fear of cherubs. What else? Somebody said churros, angels, chairs, cherophobia. A cherophobic has an irrational fear of happiness. What? Yeah, it's the thing. So they have this pathology where they think, well, if I'm happy now, I might trigger something bad in the future. Or if I am happy and somebody else is sad, it's like I'm rubbing it in their face and, and therefore that would make me a bad person. Or if I express happiness or, or partake in happiness, it's just a waste of time and effort because I'll just be sad later. Right? These are the type of people you want to invite to your parties, by the way. They make them epic. And this is something that's really fascinating is cherophobia. Uh, there's a higher rate of cherophobia in religious communities. What? Well, you think about it. This Mother's Day, instead of being celebrated by my children... I'm going to grieve for all the women out there who struggle with infertility. Oh, thanks for this juicy, succulent steak, but how can I enjoy this when people are starving in South Sudan? You know, I'm happy now, but death will come for me eventually. It's all vanity of vanities chasing after the wind. And so you have spiritual Debbie Downers, right? And this is often augmented by our, our culture, where I think cherophobia kind of runs rampant, where, where suffering and sadness and oppression is almost currency. You, you hear the phrase, check your privilege, right? Because if you're privileged, you are unjustly happy and you're unjustly benefiting from somebody else's pain and suffering. In fact, I read an article about a phenomenon at Yale where you have some of the wealthiest students on earth and they pretend to be poor. Why do they pretend to be poor? Because if somebody finds out that they're rich, there'll be an expectation that they use their wealth for social responsibility. And so they'd rather pretend to be poor. That way they don't have to really be concerned about the plight of other people or at least have that pressure on them. And so the, the idea is everybody wants to be oppressed. Nobody wants to be happy. Uh, you know what? This person might be somewhat successful and wealthy, but they will tell you about the pain and the burden that that brings. Sure, my body is beautiful and I'm gorgeous and good looking. I'm quoting somebody else, by the way. <laughs> but I'm sick 
and I struggle. I grew up in a fantastic household with wonderful, loving parents, so you think, but you don't understand the pressure and the expectations they put on me. So there's always this, this idea that you can't necessarily be totally happy because you might make other people feel bad. But then on the other side, you hear about mental health crises where people are not happy enough. If you're not happy enough, then you must be depressed. You have some sort of medical issue, some diagnosis. Perhaps you need some medication or or therapy. So we have this complex relationship with happiness, don't we? You don't want to be too happy, and you don't want to be happy enough. And then you think about Jesus, right? Jesus is a man of sorrows. When you see all the Renaissance art, he's not smiling. He's in pain, partly because he's being crucified. You think about the other emotions of Jesus, how when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, he, 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 he wept. When he was in the temple, he was angry, purging them, right? So a lot of times you think about the negative emotions of Jesus, But in this passage, we see a different side of Jesus, maybe one that's not celebrated often enough. You actually see the joy of Jesus. In fact, turn with me to Luke 10, 17. Luke 10, 17. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, this is an unexpected celebration. Because remember when Jesus was commissioning the 72? He said, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag or knapsack. You will be impoverished. He says, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, shake the dust off your feet. Anticipate rejection. And yet, they come back from this trial run, their ministry internship, and there's a lot of joy. Jesus is celebrating. And this is part of his mission. Remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds? They say in Luke 2.10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Heaven will be a place of joy. Paul, when he is in prison, tells the 
the Philippians to rejoice always, right? Rejoicing is instinctive for the Christian because it's instinctive for Christ. And one of the reasons why we have such a complex relationship with joy is we find the wrong things to enjoy, right? When you're rejoicing the right thing, you're going to be a lot happier. Case in point, Royals fans versus Chiefs fans. (laughs) One has endless sources of rejoicing. One, well, God gave us the Royals to humble us, right? (laughs) Yeah, have it all. But even a sports game, it comes and goes, right? One of the reasons why people struggle with happiness is they find happiness in the wrong things. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to see three sources of Jesus' joy. Okay, three sources of Jesus' joy. They are the joy of liberation, the joy of salvation, and the joy of revelation. When you find joy in Jesus' sources of joy, even though there's going to be ups and downs, there'll be times of sadness and all those other things, there will be something in your soul that will bring you to the joy that Jesus desires for you. What we can experience in heaven in its fullness, we can experience now in part. So let's look at the first, the joy of liberation. 1017. The 72 returned and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So this is a summary conversation. The 72 went out, the 72 come back, and they say, Lord, You wouldn't believe it. Remember how you sent us out as sheep in the midst of wolves? Well, we would go to different towns and we'd start preaching the the kingdom of God and then we'd start previewing the kingdom of God like you told us to do. We'd do the healing. And then they would bring like these children. One would spasm and shake and curse. So Jesus, we put our hands on him. And said, in the name of Jesus, be gone. And the kid was in his right mind. We saw another young lady who couldn't talk for years. We put our hands on her and said, in the name of Jesus, we command you to leave. And she spoke again. There was this really angry dude who tried to assault us on the roadside. We knew something was wrong with him. And so we put our hands away from him. We just went ahead and just called this one out and said, demon, be gone. And in the name of Jesus, he was in his right mind. Jesus, it was unbelievable. We went out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And we devoured those wolves. Right? This is a cause of celebration. And Jesus confirms this. He says, and he said to them in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, it's good Kansans. We know a lot about thunderstorms, right? There's nothing more magnificent than a thunderstorm that's passed us by, right? You don't have to be afraid of it, but you, you see it. And, and there's a lot of speculation. What is Jesus talking about here? Is he, is he talking about something that happened in the past where Jesus was present when Satan fell from heaven? Or is he looking into the future and looking to the time when Satan will fall from heaven? Well, it seems to be wedded to the ministry of the 72. A better translation was, I was seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This wasn't a one-time lightning strike. 
you know, the idea is he saw many lightning strikes. In fact, I looked it up. Your average storm produces 4 to 11 surface, or cloud to surface strikes a minute, right? So Jesus is standing back and he's watching one lightning strike and another lightning strike and another lightning strike. And every one of those represents victory over, deem, victory over Satan and his minions. He is watching a decisive win. When the kingdom of God confronts the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God is triumphant. Now, Satan will regroup, he will rally, and he will crucify Jesus. But overall, he's making a statement here. When the kingdom of God intersects with the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God wins. He wins. This is part of what they were called to do. He sends them out on a victorious mission. They will be successful because of the mandate given to them, because of the free use of his name, which he delegated to them, and the fact that they were protected the whole time. Verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, before you get too crazy, with this passage. I want to kind of explain what it means. Given the context of spiritual warfare and taking on demonic forces, scorpions and snakes are emblematic of the forces of darkness, right? Satan took an animal form of a serpent, right? Scorpions were known for their venomous sting. I looked it up. They actually kill about 3,000 people a year. Right, highly dangerous animals or insects or what are they? Oh, never mind. I'll let your biologists figure that one out. But they both capture the sting of death where one bite can kill you, right? And, and how does Satan and his minions manipulate and control the human race? It's through the sting of death. Hebrews 2.15 teaches that Jesus came to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But in this case, Jesus made it very clear that you will not be stung by death on this mission. You will triumph over death. You will triumph over Satan and his minions. You will be victorious. Nothing shall hurt you. And so they had the ability for this season to go from village to village to liberate people from the dark power of Satan and demons. They were liberated liberators. They had joy in the liberation. Now, Ari Neve was a member of the British Expeditionary Force, and he was taken captive in France. He was transported by the Nazis to Kolditz Castle, which is near the border of Germany and the Czech Republic. And there he attempted to escape multiple times, but was finally successful. When they cut a special hole through a theater floor, he descended through it with homemade German uniforms, crawled a, or basically scaled an unguarded wall, and then used his fluent German to make it all the way to Switzerland. And then they smuggled him out through Spain. And when he returned to England, he wasn't content to just retire. He signed up to be part of a special unit, a special intelligence unit, where he assisted escape networks. He used his inside knowledge of captivity 
to try to help others to escape. He found joy in not only the liberation, but also being a liberator. Right? Those of you who maybe come from a, a background where you were truly enslaved to your sin, that might have been pornography, it might be substance abuse, might be anger, who knows? Right? There is a special joy not only in being liberated yourself, but liberating other people. For those of you who have experienced soul-crushing sorrow, there is a joy in being liberated from that, but liberating other people as well, right? See, Christian joy is not only bound up in what we receive, but what we offer to other people. You were a steward of the liberation given to you. And so these people, these disciples, they are celebrating that the demons are subject to our name and that we've been able to liberate people from the forces of darkness. And Jesus says, there's actually something better to rejoice in. The joy of salvation. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a a cold rebuke that you shouldn't rebuke rejoice in that. I mean, Jesus gave them that power. They saw it. Jesus is pointing to a a greater joy, and that is that your names are written in heaven. Now, one of the running themes throughout the Bible is this idea of a book with names. In the Old Testament, it was the book of the righteous, while tormented by his enemies, David says in Psalm sixty-nine twenty-eight, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous, right? That's an Old Testament reference to it. You keep on reading all the references of Jesus. There's some book, some register where his people are written in it. And this was part of the ancient custom where they would actually record genealogies and the registers of Israel, so you knew who was a true citizen of the kingdom. Now, in this case, Jesus sees their power go out, and he says, you need to rejoice that your name is in the register of the righteous. It's actually written in heaven. And notice, they did not write their own names down, did they? Someone else wrote it down. And when your name is written in that book, it will never be blotted out. And when your name is written in that book, there's a guarantee that when the kingdom of heaven comes, you are a registered citizen of it. That is the source of rejoicing. Now, let's say some relative of yours says, I have all these extra points for Royal Caribbean, and I thought, I might send you and your family or your friends on a cruise. It's like, really? Yeah, going to send you on a cruise. It'll be awesome. Just give me your name, some of your information. Since I'm going to go ahead and redeem my points, I will go ahead and register you guys. Just show up at this date, at this time, at this place. And so you do it. They say it's taken care of. You drive down to Fort Lauderdale, you park your car, you show up at the cruise port, and you go to the agent, and I'll just use my name here, and they ask, what's your name? Uh, Dave Hintz. Okay, we'll go ahead and look you up. 
And you notice that they're, they're furrowing their brows a little bit. They're, they're clearly checking different things. They're not quite seeing your name. And then you say, well, um, so-and-so actually signed me up. Okay. Oh, there it is. Can I have your passport? That confirmation that you're getting on the boat is a cause of celebration, isn't it? I mean, you breathe your last. Work with me here. This is for illustration purposes. You show up to heaven, and there's a gate agent there, okay? My illustration, work with me. And they say, can I have your name, please? Dave Hintz. Okay, well, let's see. Okay, and as they're leafing through the book, I'm thinking, oh no, is this going to be like a Matthew 7, 23 thing? I mean, do I say, Lord, Lord, or am I just following into a trap here? What, what do I do? And they're kind of going through, and then all of a sudden they stop. Wait, Dave Hintz from Emporia, Kansas, husband of Becky, father of Julia, Nathan, Jacob, and Amberly, rock star pastor, that's me. <laughs> that's me. Well, come on in, right? I mean, that would be a cause of celebration. It doesn't matter what happens. If your name is written in the book of life, that is a cause of rejoicing. And and frankly, having that power to do ministry, to liberate people in Jesus' name, that is great, but not as great as your salvation. Think about it. Spiritual giftedness really means nothing without spiritual life. It is possible to be used to liberate people and not be liberated yourself. One of the most famous apologists of the 21st century is a man by the name of Ravi Zacharias. When he wrote over 30 books, he had his own ministry. He was the most famous apologist on earth. I would listen to him, and I really enjoyed uh, hearing his stories and how we won these people to the Lord. But when he passed away, some secrets came forward. If you know the full extent of it, which I will not disgrace this pulpit with it, there's no way the guy was a Christian. No way. Impossible. That is a case where the message saved, not the messenger. And while it was good that he was able to do good, What does it gain anyone if they have that spiritual giftedness and lose their soul? Right? That's why salvation is the greater blessing. Secondly, spiritual giftedness pales in comparison to spiritual life. I mean, sometimes you might despair that you don't really feel like you have an important ministry. Other people seem to be featured more than you. But you know what? In the end, if your name is written in the book of life and you have salvation, I mean, ultimately, that's what matters, Right? The greatest cause for joy is salvation, right? We have been liberated so that we can enjoy salvation. But then Jesus does one better. He actually goes beyond liberation to salvation to the joy of revelation. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now, that word for rejoice, I mean, he is not, I rejoice, I mean, we're talking like end of the super celebration rejoice. We're talking like 
fist-pumping, exultant joy, and is in sync with the Holy Spirit. This is as excited as we see Jesus in all the Gospels. He is rejoicing. And what leads to this joy? Verse 21. And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them, there's a revelation, to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He is enthused that salvation, that the truth of the gospel, the kingdom, the truth of the Father, the truth of him is revealed to little children. Now, Jesus did not send them out to do child evangelism fellowship or VBS. He's not talking about the salvation of actual children, although he's not excluding it. There is a contrast between the wise and the understanding, the self-proclaimed experts, the people with high status, right? The, the people with status in that society were the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, everyone knew that if anyone was on the cusp of heaven, it would be the scribes and Pharisees. Don't believe me? Well, in Matthew 520 In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that the scribes and Pharisees are righteous. He's basically pointing to the popular perception that those with knowledge and understanding, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the holy ones. Everyone else is a distant second, third, fourth, fifth place. And so there is this understanding that Somebody who didn't have those privileges, who weren't educated, did not have the right connections, weren't hooked up with the right rabbi, they had no chance. They had no chance. But Jesus rejoices that the little children understand it. And why little children? Well, we all adore children, we love children, but in that day and age, children were not seen as contributors or producers. They were to be seen, not heard, spoken to, but not to speak. My children basically had no status. They offered society nothing. And so Jesus rejoices that these little children, the marginalized, those without status, they are able to understand. So is he rejoicing that those with status, the wise and understanding, can't get to heaven? Well, not necessarily. You see, if you have no status... You can't get it, right? But if you do have status, you could set it aside. That's why James says in James 1, 9 through 10, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Right? Those without status boast that you will be exalted by the Lord. And let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. And so it's not that the rich don't get in, but the rich set aside their status, right? They realize that their wealth does not give them status. The only way to have real status with the Lord is for the Lord to give it to you, and that's to empty yourself of all rights, all ability to try to coerce God to elevate you because of what you have done. You see, this kingdom, this knowledge of God is not mediated by what you know, what you do, what status you possess. It's mediated by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, 
and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, we're getting a picture of the relationship between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son. Jesus is the exclusive Son of the Father. And the Father gives knowledge of himself to the Son. And this was very common. You see, the Father was in charge of teaching and transmitting knowledge to his Son. Why was Jesus a carpenter's son? Or why was he a carpenter? Because he was a carpenter's son. Right? The father takes the trade, trains the son, and then the son embraces it. In this case, the father reveals himself in his entirety to Jesus so that Jesus knows the intricacies of the father and he can know it and he can tell other people about it, right? Who knows? No one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And now he is rejoicing because Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to the 72. They see his power because they minister in Jesus' name. Their names are written in the book of life. This is like the climax. And he sees how they've embraced his revelation and he exalts. And then he turns most likely to his 12 disciples. And he said to them privately, verse 23... Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's saying this is a moment that everyone's been waiting for. Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they've all wanted to see this. And you're seeing it. David, Hezekiah, Josiah, all wanted to see this, and you're seeing this. You have been privileged with revelation. I am revealing myself to you. I'm revealing my Father to you. And it's available for anyone who seeks me. doesn't matter what kind of status you have, what you've done or didn't do, what you can offer, what university you went to, what job or earning potential you possess, what family you come from. If you go to Jesus, you can have full access of the Father. All you have to do is humble yourself. And get this, when somebody gets it, Jesus rejoices. Isn't that interesting? When his disciples get it, when they understand it, it's not a, oh, another mouth to feed in heaven. Oh, great. This church is getting too crowded. There is joy when anybody understands the revelation of Jesus. Now, there's some implications to this. Number one, you can rejoice that you understand the revelation of Jesus. Right? You all might have been overlooked for a lot of things. You didn't get the promotion. Perhaps you were the non-favored child in your family. You can think, I don't have good health. I'm having to live in Emporia. I'm a Royals fan. I don't have friends. But you know what you have? Jesus has revealed the Father to you. Right? You can know 
Jesus, you can know the Father, right? The great thing about salvation, sometimes we just think about salvation in terms of perks, right? Uh, One of the perks is I get the peace that transcends all understanding. I can belong to the community of the saints. Since bondage is broken, right? Those are a lot of perks. Now, January, I'm sorry, July 27th is a big day in my life. That is Bachelor Liberation Day for me. On that day, roughly 21 years ago, I woke up single, and at the end of the day, I was no longer single. I no longer had to be alone. And now I celebrate that day. What do you think about that? You're probably thinking, Dave might be in trouble right now. (laughs) Right? Is the benefits of my anniversary, the fact that I've been liberated from singleness, not that you need to be liberated from it. <laughs> Work with me here, okay? <laughs> that the benefits of marriage is that I got to marry my bride, right? I scored the greatest relational upset in human history. <laughs> there you go, Pastor Dave. You're still rocking it. Yep. <laughs> right, that's a great prize. You see, a lot of times, yeah, the, the greatness of salvation is not what you avoid. The greatness of your salvation is not that you avoid hell, you avoid demonic oppression. It's what you gain. You gain access to heaven to be with Jesus and the Father. Right? You're in the presence of the supreme king of the universe who loved you enough to die for you. And he wants you to know him. Secondly, there is a special joy in in revealing Jesus to others. Jesus is pumped when other people get it, right? I know for me, I feel the most spiritually alive when I share the gospel. Back when I was in college, I would share the gospel. Then I'd go to my dorm room and I'd play the newsboys, not ashamed, at a very loud volume, right? You can look it up. It's cheesy, but man, it still gets me stoked. And I, and I understand that there's other people who feel spiritual alive when they pray, when they worship, and, or read the Bible. And all that stuff is meaningful. I'm just telling my experience when other people have their eyes open to Jesus, that is one of the great thrills that I can experience. Because not only do I want their lives to be changed, I want them to appreciate the Jesus that I know. Now, for you grandparents out there, right? You have great joy in bragging about your grandkids. There you go, Dave, picking on grandparents again. Well, you guys are easy targets. Right? You want to show the pictures. You tell them all the stories. And what do you want to hear? Oh, they are adorable. That's right, they're adorable. Right? You want to share it. You want other people to enjoy it. And sometimes when you think about sharing something for other people to enjoy, we can almost have this zero-sum game. Like, I might talk about my wife's German chocolate cake. And how much I enjoy that. And that might tempt some of you guys to show up on my birthday, which I will push you away, just so you know. Why? Because I want more cake for me. (laughs) But it's not the way it works with Jesus, is it? Jesus is infinitely loving, infinitely accessible. There's more love to go around. In fact, when you share the love of Jesus and the revelation of Jesus, those are more people who will rejoice in heaven, praising his name with you, right? There is a special joy 
and pointing other people to the greatness of Jesus. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why when I counsel people and they are struggling with sorrow and sadness, I, I try to put them in a position where they are ministering to other people. Sign up for Adventure Club. Do this. Do this. Because sometimes when you think about your own misery, you can lose perspective of some of the great joys. Like when you open up other people's eyes and that kid is there and they're lighting up these truths about the Bible are starting to sink in, there's a special joy in that. It's a joy of revealing Jesus. There's a, there's a refreshment that goes on where you remember, that's right, that is a big deal to think about this aspect of Jesus or this aspect of God the Father or this ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? It's to focus on other people. And I think there's another benefit as well is that when you focus on the happiness of others, when you focus on the joy given to you, you think less about your own misery. You think less about your own misery. Going back to the cherophobics, you know, the people who are afraid of happiness. One thing that sadness can do, now I'm going to qualify this. Some people do need comfort. Some people, because of the fall, do suffer greatly. I do not want to minimize that at all. And one of the things that our church does quite well is we rally around those people who are suffering who are sorrowful, who are trying to make sense of some tragic loss or tragic blow in their life, right? There, there is a place for that. However, in our society, sadness and sorrow can be a source of social currency. Because the expectation is everybody rallies around the person who's struggling. And by struggling, you can be the center, and everyone has a, a ministry to you, right? And that is good, and that is right. But sometimes people reach a point where it's like, we're good now. Now it's my turn to turn around and comfort other people, right? That's the way it should be. We comfort, we nurture people, we help them grow, and then they apply Second Corinthians chapter 1, and they become a comfort for other people. That is the natural progression. But it is also true that some people become addicted to the comfort that comes from others. They have expectations that this person is to comfort me. This person is to be here for me. They can make demands. For them, if they are comforted adequately, then they're no longer the focus of another person's ministry and comforting attempts. You can often get jealous of other people being comforted instead of you, right? That's Christian cherophobia. I don't want to lose the social currency that being comforted and, free and content will give me, right? Now, this is a problem with that. You prefer the comfort that comes from other people than the comfort that comes from Christ, right? People can only do so much, but Christ can do so much more. And Jesus offers you the comfort that comes from the Father through him. You don't have to look elsewhere. And our goal as people who want to comfort other people is not to point them to ourselves as a source of comfort and make them reliant on us as a source of comfort. 
right, is to make them reliant on Christ for the source of comfort. And to make sure that they find comfort in the right thing, that it's not attention from other people, right? It's the knowledge and the privilege of knowing Christ, being liberated from your sin, being saved. So you think about it. When needing comfort, often it's because something terrible has happened, at least in our own perception, right? It's to grieve, obviously, the loss of a relationship, but also become so fixated on it that you can't remember the good things that Christ has given you. So what would you rather have, achieve Super Bowl victory or have Christ? Would you rather be a billionaire or a Christian? Would you rather have perfect health or have Christ? Would you rather be dating the most beautiful single woman or handsome single man in Emporia or have Christ? Would you rather have perpetual emotional happiness or have Christ? Would you rather spend another day with your deceased loved one or, or have Christ? Right, do you get it? I mean, if you have Christ, I mean, let's not sell that short. Christ has liberated you from sin. Through Christ, your name is written in the book of life. Through Christ, you have been given salvation. God has revealed himself to you. You can know the Father. And all that is available to you. Right? But you have to respond in faith. It's not being passive. It's not trusting in Christ because everything else has failed me. It's to understand that it is Christ that is to be your source of joy. Jesus has joy. There is no cross before him anymore. For the joy set before him, right? He despised his shame. He was crucified. Now he's resurrected. And Jesus rejoices when you get it. Jesus rejoices when you understand him. Jesus rejoices when you want other people to rejoice in him. Right? The joy of Jesus is not an aberration. It is an eternal sentiment that he will have from this point forward. But to experience the joy of Jesus, right? Jesus has to be your source of joy. You can enjoy other things, right? You can enjoy a steak. You can enjoy your kids as gifts from God the Father through Jesus, right? But ultimately... Jesus is to be your joy. And when Jesus is your joy, even though the emotions will go up and down, even though there'll be difficult things, times where you need comfort and everything, in the end, in the end, that dominating joy will rule and guard your hearts. Let's pray. Father, I come before you grateful for the joy offered by Jesus to us. We thank you that we, while Jesus was a man of sorrows, he is a triumphant victor. We thank you that he does rejoice, and we pray that we will see him as our source of joy, source of our liberation, source of our salvation, and, and the object of our revelation. And I pray for anyone here right now who is struggling to have that kind of joy, that they will reach out in faith, move forward in faith, trust you in faith that in the end all of these trials and tribulations in life will lead to uh, a deeper understanding of you and who you are 
Pray for anyone struggling right now that they'll have the courage to be honest with themselves and honest with others and that as a body we will guide them to find ultimate comfort in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.